Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Hazel's Story, an epic saga podcast. We're here to dive deep into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples' comic book masterpiece, unpacking the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness in this grand space opera. I'm Alan. And my name's Abu. And we're ready to dive into volume three. This is going to be the next episode in our read-along series as we go through all of the chapters of Saga. And we're starting off volume three today. That's chapters 13, 14, and 15. And... I cannot wait, as always, Abu. Yeah, this is definitely the part of the story where things sort of slow down plot-wise, but that does not mean there's not a lot to talk about. There's plenty. Yep, and just some brief housekeeping to get out of the way. As always, these read-along episodes are spoiler-free about anything that happens Mm -hmm. after the chapters we're discussing. So 13, 14, and 15, if you have not caught up and read all the way through chapter 15 yet, Hang on, go read those chapters and come back. Definitely. And as always, we love to hear from listeners. So email us, hazelstorypodcast at gmail.com is the place to share your own thoughts as you read along with us. Send us ideas for episode topics that you'd like us to discuss in the future. And of course, to share in all the saga goodness. So once again, that's hazelstorypodcast at gmail.com. Yes, there are two S's in the middle there. And also just what your experience is. Like Abu says, this is where the story kind of slows down a little bit and you start to get some like deep character stuff. So I don't know, this is the part in the story for me where I started to really identify with certain characters and like really feel more of what they were going through. So if you're having that experience, let us know. Yeah. So for today's episode, we'll start off with a brief summary of the three chapters from today's reading. Then we'll jump into our key takeaways, and we'll wrap up as we always do with our favorite panels and quotes. So let's get into it, Alan. All right, awesome. So we open chapter 13 at a Landfallian military hospital, which is presumably actually on the home world of Landfall, which I think is one of the first times we've actually gotten to see what Landfall looks like. And it looks kind of fancy. It's giving off kind of like Coruscant-like you know, Star Wars vibes. Although mm-hmm. maybe not everything is quite so fancy because once you get inside the military hospital, things are looking a little shabby. It's kind of maybe a little bit of a nod to uh, the American you know, VA hospital. And we see a soldier who's missing one of his hands. Remember him from way back in chapter five. Uh, and he's recounting his encounter with Marco and Alana to a pair of tabloid reporters of sort of humanoid amphibian I don't know. One of them's green. They're kind of frog-like. They're kind of like fishes. (laughs) It's unclear. But what this soldier makes clear to these reporters is that no one in the military and no one in the mainstream media believes this soldier, that he saw Alana and Marco as a couple and that they had a baby that was clearly their baby together, that Mm -hmm. Alana was not kidnapped. This baby is theirs together and nobody believes him. Nobody except for these two tabloid journalists 
reporters, whatever, they're on the hunt of this story. Right. The failing New York Times doesn't want to hear it, but these guys do. <laughs> we then cut to the rocket ship tree just a few weeks after Barr's death, but before the family arrived on Quietus. If you recall, chapter 12 ended on that dramatic reveal that the family was already on Quietus. So here we are, kind of going back in time, filling in the gap between chapters. Hazel has woken everybody up in the night by shitting herself, classic babies, <laughs> and Clara is tending to her. It's clear to us that Clara and Marco are still very much reeling from the loss of Barr. It's obvious that neither of them are getting that much sleep these days. When Alana wakes up, she finds Marco already awake, bearded, looking really, really tired. And obviously, Clara is already awake when Alana gets up and already taking care of Hazel. Now, Clara has been reading D. Oswald Heist's novel, which we know has become very central to this story. And she actually confronts Alana about their plan to visit Quietus and to go to D. Oswald Heist. Like, what's the game plan here, Alana? Why are we doing this? What's even the point of all of this? And Alana says that what she and Marco think is right for their baby. They need guidance on what to do next. So they're going to go to someone that has inspired the two of them so much for advice. And she also tells Clara, hey, you don't have to stay with us if you don't want. You are free to go. We're not going to make you come with us. And Clara's response was just gutting. This made me so sad. She said, quote, if you three are going to get yourselves killed, I might as well tag along. I've done more than enough outliving, mm. end quote. Just the the loss. There's so much loss and so much like personal. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh, that is broken up by the next page. We get a quick frame of Prince Robot the Fourth, presumably also en route to Quietus. Also, he's reading a book, which I think we're to assume is D. Oswald Heist's novel. So everybody is... Mm -hmm. really getting into uh, this book. Then we cut to the Will and Gwendolyn and Slave Girl who are on a planet that they have presumably landed after the big space battle with the time suck where their ship was all messed up. And mm -hmm. the Will is on the phone arguing with an insurance company. I love when <laughs> Brian Kivon does this and he drops in these little like bits of contemporary life. No, sir, that's not covered. I'm sorry. If you had this coverage, then you would have been fine. And... <laughs> There's a really great line where the per the customer service person is like, I'm sorry, what was your name again? And his response is, the will, as in losing mine to live, which is such <laughs> a like silly zinger, but also so a great, good. a joke that had to be made. So the will can't get his ship fixed. So they're kind of marooned on this planet until somebody can come out from the insurance company to fix it. Gwendolyn has learned that Slave Girl can't sense Marco's rings anymore, so they don't know where they are. The Will and Gwendolyn get into an argument, and the Will like gets so angry to the point where he raises his fist, like he might hit Gwendolyn. And then we get this amazing like high angle shot pointing down at Slave Girl, where she just holds the Will's cape in her little hand and says, "No hitting." That is one of the rules, which oh I God. just said in my daughter's little voice. And I, when I read it, imagined it in her little voice. And the will just kind of stomps off in frustration. Yeah, that's gut-wrenching. I also, sort of a theory of mine is, perhaps that's also one of the rules she learned on Sextillion? Yeah. Like, if you think about that, that gets really gross. And Yeah. Ugh. 
Yeah, no, that like, I mean, because where else does this little girl know, where else was she taught anything? And so yeah. every once in a while that pops back up as being a foundational part of this character, which is really intense, but also I feel like Brian K. Vaughn holding true to the character's roots. Right, absolutely. And it's true to life and there's no holding back here. Like, of course, she might have left Sextillion, but Sextillion has not entirely left the slave girl's life yet. And here's just one example of that heartbreaking stuff. In the next scene, we are back with the family as the rocket ship tree lands on Quietus and our crew takes their first steps out onto the planet right into a giant pile of bones. (laughs) Isabel hovers out there and offers a bit of iconic advice for everyone. Quote, those of you with legs are gonna wanna watch your step. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) I love Isabel so much. She's easily in my top three. Now, suddenly, this pile of bones is controlled by something called bone bugs, as we learn, and the bones start attacking everyone. Isabel explains that these bone bugs apparently reanimate the marrow or some shit. Her words, (laughs) not mine. Very scientific explanation. And in some of the coolest panels of this chapter, Alana fights off one of these giant bone monsters with a mace that she's grabbed from nearby, while also holding baby Hazel in the other hand. It's such a dope moment. Truly just like badass, like mom taking care of business. Meanwhile, Marco is just, I guess, because he's still taking this like vow of nonviolence, just kind of standing around. (laughs) While one of the bone monsters has actually bitten his mom's ear off. Yeah. Like has clomped onto his mom's ear and he has to like pull it off of the side of her head. And it takes her whole ear, her whole like sort of goat deer, I don't know, whatever. Her long like ear comes off of her head, which is pretty terrifying. It's terrifying. And she's taking it in stride, as we know Clara does. But it's at this moment that another bone snake-like creature sneaks up behind Marco. And it's about to attack him when suddenly, from off screen, a very drunk D. Oswald heist takes a shot at the bone monster, saving Marco's life. Heist walks up. He is wearing a very wide open green robe. He's wearing soiled whitey tighties. And he's very drunk. <laughs> and we end this scene on some classic Brian K. Vaughn meta commentary. Quote, over the years, we met every kind of person imaginable, but no one makes worse first impressions than writers. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) That gave me a chuckle. Brian speaking through Hazel's narration there. Yeah, whenever this book offers up like little commentary on creative professions or just like the little things in Brian's life, I find it totally delightful or just like in their lives in general. Yeah. But then it very quickly in the next scene, it ties the two scenes together with that narration because the next line of narration from Hazel as it cuts to the will is no one makes worse first impressions than writers. Okay, almost no one because clearly the will is just a real piece of shit. At least in this moment in his life. <laughs> so he's sitting on this lush planet, still waiting for the spaceship repair people to show up, smoking almost certainly a joint, and cooking over an open fire what looks like a giant cockroach, I guess? <laughs> and then just kind of like staring longingly at this photo of himself in the stock, who he's clearly pining for and mourning after she's you know been killed uh, a few chapters ago. But then some weird shit starts to happen because... 
a hallucination of the stalk like walks up to the fire and tells the will that he should forget this whole stupid thing about trying to track down Alana and Marco and just settle down on this paradise planet with Gwendolyn and Slave Girl as his wife and child. He like hollers and shouts back at the hallucination, at which point Gwendolyn comes up and is like, yo, dude, you're yelling a lot. And Gwendolyn asks him why he was yelling. And he says, I don't know. And when she says, well, you woke up Slave Girl, the will gets this like amazing, brilliant end of chapter full panel where he just declares, from now on, we're calling her Sophie, which is great. Slave Girl gets a name, end of chapter 13. Yeah, I love that. I have felt weird this entire time calling her Slave Girl, but I wanted to stay consistent with the chapters and not call her Sophie until she was named. <laughs> Big same. All right, let's move on to chapter 14. We start this chapter meeting a young woman with butterfly wings and sensible shoes. <laughs> Sorry, I love your additions to the script, Alan. <laughs> she is. She. I had to put that in there because the way that Fiona has drawn this woman, I can imagine in the script that Brian wrote for let like nondescript Midwestern woman yep. in slacks and sensible shoes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the perfect description. Just add a pair of butterfly wings to that. Totally. So she's answering the door in her suburban home and at the door are are two tabloid journalists who we now know are named Upshur and Doff. They ask this woman about Alana, and we learn that she is actually Alana's stepmother, and her name is Evan. She obviously looks too young to be her stepmother, which the journalists ask about, and she tells them that Alana's dad had actually remarried after separating from Alana's biological mother. And we get this absolutely iconic wedding photo with a young emo Alana fuming in the background. I know you picked this as your favorite panel, so we'll talk more about this later in the episode. It's so good. It's so good. This made me literally laugh out loud. <laughs> the tabloid reporters then ask if Alana would have defected, to which her stepmother is like, no, of course not. And we end this scene on a shot of this flag with a purple circle on it and a purple ribbon out front on the tree, and as you have very recently taught me, Alan, this is actually what U.S. households did for MIA troops as well, with a red ribbon. So there's some support our troops vibes all throughout this scene, where it's clear that her stepmother truly believes that this war is just, and she supports the troops unequivocally. Totally. She 100% supports the troops and wants Alana to come home, but... As we shift back to Quietus, we get some of the amazing narration from Hazel that kind of is foreshadowing that makes this story super fun. So she says that, quote, actually, my mother never again set foot on the planet where she was born. Granny and I did, but that wasn't until long after this trip. So I'll just shut up now. So I guess at some point, Hazel and her grandma are going to make it back to landfall, but Alana isn't. Meh. Meanwhile, our family, plus one drunk writer, are very much cognizant of the fact they need to get away from all of these haunted bones slash bone bug infested bones. But Heist doesn't really want anything to do with them until they show him baby Hazel and that she is in fact the offspring of both Lanfalian and Reed's parents. And Heist is astonished and he says this line where it's something like, oh my God, a nighttime smoke. You got it, which clearly is indicative of the fact that, yes, 
the book is apparently not just a trashy romance novel. It is, in fact, a treatise on radical pacifism meant to end the war. Mm -hmm. And he gets so astonished by this fact that when they hand Hazel to him to look and see that she is both Lanfalian and from Wreath, he just vomits all over her. Oh, just like man. gross orange vomit so too. Gross. And then the Hazel narration <laughs> makes a funny quip about this being sort of her kind of baptism, which is pretty gross. And Heist agrees that since he's puked on the baby, the whole family can come back to his lighthouse home to rest up and use their washing machine, which Alana is super excited about. So funny. Back on the lush planet, Gwendolyn is using the Will's extendo lance to catch flying sharks out of the sky, presumably so they can have something to eat for dinner. That is a sentence that Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples have made me say out loud. <laughs> I just love every once in a while when there's the like juxtaposition from like sensible suburban house that looks like it could be in Ohio, <laughs> and then you yeah. switch scenes and there's flying tiger sharks that they're harpooning with an extendable lance. It's great. Yeah, it's so great. I love this story. Sophie is still clearly adjusting to her new name, and Gwendolyn tells her to go with Lion Cat back to the ship and start preparing this shark for dinner. The Will then tells Gwendolyn that he's retiring. He says that he's going to be stepping back. He's out of the game now, but he promises that he will pass along any tips that he gets about Alana and Marco. The hallucination of Stock is also interspersed throughout these panels, clearly still talking to the Will as he's trying to communicate with Gwendolyn, sort of egging him on and ultimately getting him to outright kiss Gwendolyn out of the blue. <laughs> oh, dude. Like, wow, a bold, bold move. Gwendolyn then punches the Will and storms off and says, quote, next time you touch me without asking... I punch your goddamn heart out, end quote. Yeah, it's super funny because obviously this was all egged on by this hallucination that he's having. And then the hallucination of the stock says in his ear, without asking, which is, as she points out, it is a weird way to phrase that statement. So I don't know, maybe there is something there between him and Gwendolyn. Only time will tell. Yeah, I think those two panels where they kiss clearly implies there is. Because in the first panel, Gwendolyn is a little shocked, eyes open. And then in the second panel, she closes her eyes and kind of mm, leans in. Yeah, yeah, something, something's going on there. But yeah. clearly not in a way that Gwendolyn is comfortable with, which she makes very clear. Absolutely. So then we go back to Quietus, where we get one single panel of the same walrus shepherd little guy that we saw when we first arrived on Quietus, which I can't imagine it's a coincidence that we keep seeing him. Mm -hmm. I feel like he's going to become part of the story at some point. But inside of the lighthouse, a heist is showing everybody around and says he's going to get a med kit to fix Clara's, what I have to assume would be gushing air wound. <laughs> they end up in a library and there's a bunch of amazing books in there. And then Clara mentions something called the Battle of Cartwright, which instantly sucks all the air out of the room. Heist gets very quiet. Alana asks Heist if he was at Cartwright. He says no, his wife was because she was killed by wreath forces during the siege. Clara like chips back a little chippy and was like, oh, she never should have been fighting alongside the coalition butchers. And then that's when 
heist reveals that his wife was not a soldier. She was just a musician who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and was killed by an errant spell. At which point, Clara asks everyone else to leave the room so that, quote, the grown-ups can speak in private. Everyone else leaves, and in maybe one of the most heartfelt scenes in this entire story, Heist tends to Clara's wound on her ear. As the two discuss war and the pain of losing a loved one, and Heist starts talking about how much it hurts to have lost his first love, and can apparently tell from just the way that Clara is carrying herself that she has also recently lost a dear loved one. Mm -hmm. And then they have this really, really, I don't know, sort of direct and almost too real conversation about grief and loss, where Heist says towards the end, quote, if your spouse was anything like mine, I regret to inform you that the rest of your days will be, by and large, kind of shit, uh, which I remember reading this for the first time, very much single and unattached and being like, I don't know, relationships come and go. But reading it mm -hmm. the second time, now married to the love of my life, I'm like, oh yeah, no, that would be a part that would happen, like a stage of grief that you'd go through where you'd just be like, fuck, I had this amazing partner that I was going through life with. And I don't know that my life will ever be as good as it was when I was with them. Which, it's funny, you get a hazel line of narration at the end of that page where she says, quote, Granny would never love anyone the way she loved my grandfather, but that doesn't mean she never loved again. Which is, again, some of that cloying foreshadowing that we have grown to love so much. Yeah. Uh, this scene gutted me. Luckily, as in we're in that moment of like, it's funny, it's not even despair because they're both kind of like, like the scene ends with... Clara starting to talk about how she met Barr and he was some yeah. goofy kid she met at a youth hostel, which is super cute. And then we cut to the next scene, which I think you picked this as your favorite panel so we can dig into mm -hmm. it later. But it's just the cutest little like one page scene of Sophie hanging out and kind of playing with her own I new identity in the grass with Lion Cat. And it's just truly, truly, truly delightful. Yeah, uh, I love it so much. While she's hanging out with Lion Cat, though, Gwendolyn and the Will are <laughs> continuing this argument that they've not clearly <laughs> been having for a long time. At that moment, one of the Will's informants, who is some sort of human-sized ferret, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a grease monkey jumpsuit, which I love. In a grease monkey jumpsuit. So good. This informant calls the Will and tells him that Prince Robot IV has just stopped for fuel at his station and was asking around about some place named Quietus. So I guess even princes in this galaxy have to pump their own gas. <laughs> and now here at the end of chapter 14, it's obvious that our many characters and many factions are about to come to a collision course on Quietus. But of course, chapter 15 does not start after that on Quietus, but instead <laughs> with, I actually, when I saw the first page of chapter 15, I thought that it was Prince Robot again, but it becomes mm -hmm. clear that this is actually a different royal robot. And this royal robot is talking to our intrepid tabloid reporter duo about Alana, because this robot was Alana's commanding officer before Alana got sent to Cleve, which we find out the reason why Alana got sent to Cleve was apparently because she was reluctant to drop bombs on civilians on the planet that they're on now hmm. the commanding officer says 
I sent her to cleave as punishment because she hesitated to drop the bombs, which could have cost my soldiers their lives. Though, she did actually eventually drop the bombs, clearly killing a bunch of civilians. So we learn that even Alana has, in the course of this war, been forced to take actions that took lives. Yeah. We don't get to ponder that for too long, though, because just as one of the reporters is asking about whether this commanding officer thinks Alana got kidnapped or something else, he gets shot in the shoulder by a sniper, which then we get another one of these indications of who is the bigger aggressor in this war, who's sort of the evil empire versus the rebellion, when somebody on the wreath side takes a sniper pot shot at a reporter. And so the commander's response is to call in a low orbital laser, I assume, strike on the building where the sniper is. And it basically like disintegrates the entire top half of the building, all to get one sniper. So clearly we can see who's the empire here, and it is the Wreath Coalition. Yeah, what a gorgeous panel. I almost picked this as my favorite panel if it wasn't so horrific, but just that seeing that plume of the explosion the top half of the building shattering, and then just the silhouettes of the commander and the two reporters in the front of it. Kind of a horrifying panel. It is truly beautiful. If we ever get orbital bombardment like this, it'll truly be devastating and terrible, but it will look cool. Yeah. So from that, we then jump back to Quietus in the lighthouse where Alana is doing some sad laundry And we get a little bit more of that amazing Hazel narration that foreshadows things to come. She says, quote, I don't know exactly how many people my mother killed, at least not how many before she gave birth to me, end quote. So ominous, just hinting at the fact that Alana's killing days are not behind her and there's more to come. Isabel then comes to get her, ghosts in right through the wall. (laughs) (laughs) And scares the shit out of Alana. But she's got good news. Marco is in the other room having genuine fun for the first time since the death of his father. And so Alana rushes over to the other room to find Heist, Clara, and Marco playing some sort of board game that apparently they played when they were kids. We learn from Heist that he learned this game from his second wife and they move on to the wrestling portion of the game. (laughs) So it's not Pictionary, which is what I thought it originally was. (laughs) I think part of it's Pictionary and then part of it's wrestling and then part of it's like magic fire. I don't know. At some point, somebody is going to come up with a version of this game the way that like somebody actually made, you know, 4D chess from Star Trek. But I I can't wait until Nun Tuj Nun is uh, a board game that I could pick up in my local nerd store. For sure. I would support that Kickstarter. (laughs) So then we leave our family about to get down to some serious wrestling to be back on the lush planet where finally this repair person has shown up to take care of the Will's ship. And just continuing our anthropomized animal series, the insurance adjuster is a fox person of some kind and a very (laughs) dapper hat. Yes. (laughs) And a suit and tie. My guys are professional. Very dapper hat. It's funny. I read this entire conversation between the insurance guy and the will as though the Fox guy was kind of like a 1920s, like huckster from Brooklyn or something. (laughs) Yes. Yes. 
<laughs> so that's, that's he, what so, he's dressed up as. Right, right. He's dressed up as like, and so he says like, uh, "Hey, give the thermostat not another hour, soda hot, but then she'll be space worthy again." <laughs> yes. How'd you get her all tore up like that, anyhow? And then the Will says, "Forgot to mind my own business." And he's like, "Ugh, damn, son, just trying to make conversation." And then a hundred percent. That is exactly the voice I also heard in my <laughs> in my head, Ellen. That's so funny. It's so good. And just like it's one of these things where like I feel like they do this with what are essentially non-playable characters, the like background characters on this show, where they just make them as absurd as possible. And I absolutely love it. Love it. So Fox insurance adjuster aside, they've gotten the ship all fixed. Sophie offers the insurance adjuster guy a skewer of, I assume, shark meat, I guess, from the meal that they've just eaten, which will be important in just a minute. The Will then tells the stock hallucination that's been haunting him for this entire set of chapters that he's not listening to her anymore and that he's going to take the group in search of Alana and Marco and he's going to finish their mission, which makes Gwendolyn super happy. But then they turn around and wouldn't you know it, they've somehow lost a <laughs> six and a half year old child amid uncharted planet, which, you know, bad parenting. Yeah, there is kind of an amazing <laughs> line where. The Will asks, Gwendolyn, where's Sophie? And Gwendolyn says what every person who doesn't have kids always says, which is, I thought you were watching her. <laughs> when, when you have kids, you're both watching the kid all of the time. Mm. This does not ever actually. Just a movie thing. Yes. Oh, no. Most definitely. We then cut back to the intense board game currently taking place at the lighthouse. They've now moved on to the arm wrestling portion of the game. <laughs> what is this game? And it's getting very, very intense. Currently, Alana and Clara are locked hand in hand in the most intense arm wrestling match of their lives. Alana does ultimately come out on top. And then Clara <laughs> insults Alana by insinuating that she's too docile as a mother and that she should go out and get a job. She can't just stay at home doing house chores all day. Alana's response is, Kind of funny. Quote, okay, that is surprisingly progressive and totally offensive. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> that gave me a good chuckle. Heist jumps into the argument and also like weirdly agrees. And this really gets to Alana. All of these people sort of criticizing her as a mother and telling her what she should be doing rather than uh, what she is doing. And what really sort of sets her off is Heist saying the words that we know are a big trigger for Alana based on her past. He says to Alana that she has a family to think about now. She needs to figure out how to support them. And she storms out of the room because we know this is very personal for Alana. It's something she's struggled with with her own parents growing up. Totally. So then as Alana rushes out of that room, we cut back to the lush planet where Sophie is wandering around in the woods, just eating random berries off of bushes, which like, you know, kids don't don't eat random berries <laughs> off of bushes. Yeah. <laughs> in this case, the random berries off the bush are causing Sophie to hallucinate. And unlike the Will, who was hallucinating the ghost of his ex-lover, Sophie hallucinates her mother, who we are to assume she lost at a very young age and... She says all these nice things about how she's been searching the galaxy, but it all seems pretty ominous and you can tell that something bad is about to happen. But before we can find out what's going to happen, we're back to Quietus where Alana and Marco are chatting outside of the lighthouse 
And Alana is still super grumpy about the comments that she received inside. And she decides that the solution is super obvious. She's just going to give Marco a blowjob right there (laughs) outside of the lighthouse with no concern for bone monsters or bone bugs. I don't know. Yep. There is a time and a place. (laughs) Marco then tells her she's using sex to avoid talking about their future. And then they have this weird exchange of quotes from Heist's book, which you knew that they both loved this book, but I didn't know that they could like quote it chapter and verse like the Bible. Yeah. Which is a little bit funny. (laughs) Anyway, so Marco quotes, Marco says, so there's this quote from chapter 15, which is funny because this is chapter 15 of Saga. And then the quote goes... There are two kinds of people left in this world, consumers and destroyers, is what Marco says. Then Alana finishes the quote by saying, we used to have creators, but they all ran away, which is dark and scary and sad and hit a little too close to home. Yeah. (laughs) Marco and Alana sort of talk it through and they're like, hey, we don't have to be office drones necessarily, but we don't also have to be like mercenaries and kill people. What if there's another way? Maybe we can create things. Maybe we can create something and be like creative professionals and that can pay the bills and still be fulfilled, which some part of me was like, did Brian K. Vaughn and his wife have this conversation at some point? (laughs) Yes, exactly what I was about to just say. This entire scene reeks of meta commentary from Brian again. Right, right. And so then you get the end of the scene is now apparently Clara and Heist have finished their game and they're observing the married couple from a high window um, talking about, well, seriously, what is this family supposed to do? They're being sought after by all of the authorities that exist. And Heist gets a little bit of a foreshadowing thing where he's like, I have an idea but it will probably work best if we fool these whippersnappers out there into thinking they thought of it on their own. (laughs) So apparently he's going to pull some Inception shit and he's going to try and like convince them that whatever his idea is was in fact their idea. And then Kalara looks down and says, what's going on down there? Is Alana praying? Oh my God. (laughs) No, no, she most certainly is not praying. Yikes. Yikes. There's a time and a place, Alana. (laughs) I will say... Before we move on from this scene and wrap up the chapter, I do want to call out the Hazel narration that this scene opens with because oh, it yes. is hands down one of my favorite lines in all of Saga. The narration starts by saying, quote, some parents let their young kids win at games, but mine never did. I don't think it was because they were particularly competitive. They just wanted to teach me a valuable lesson. Life is mostly just learning how to lose, end quote. And I just love that last bit so much because it's so true. Too real, Brian. As I don't want to get all like as a millennial, but (laughs) as a millennial who was largely told that everything in life would work out if I just shot for the stars and really like pursued my passion and did what I loved and everything would work out. I very much wish that my parents had instead spent all of my childhood instead of being hippies teaching me that life was mostly just about learning how to lose. Yeah, yeah, it's too real. And it's one of the most poignant lines in all of Saga, I think. It's it's the one that I remember to this day, years after originally having read this story. So to wrap up chapter 15 in today's reading, we return to the lush planet where the Will gets a phone call from the repair company that was just here. And they tell him about the food on the planet. Apparently, one of those repair folks had one of those shark skewers 
And now it's forcing them to hallucinate. And these hallucinations are telling the repair folks to go back to the planet. Apparently, there is some sort of parasite that compels anyone who lands on the planet to stay. And ding, 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 the light bulb goes on in the Will's head. He realizes what's been happening this entire time with these visions of the stock. It's also at this very moment that you flip the page and you're greeted with a horrifying image of Sophie holding a knife standing behind the Will. She plunges that knife into his neck. He falls to the ground, blood seeping from the wound, and we end the chapter on a full-page image of a half-hallucination stock, half-hallucination her mother, telling Sophie, quote, Now stand on the bad man's neck until he stops moving. <sighs> Just the way that, like, Sophie's bugged-out, hallucinating eyes are drawn in that panel, it, like, got yeah. very horror comic very quickly, and... Just even compared with the earlier panel where she was like cute cuddling with Lion Cat, it's just like, ah, uh, evil child with a knife. And also, what the fuck? The will just got stabbed by a child. I know. Oh my gosh. It's wild. And again, at this point, we know most chapters are going to end on a cliffhanger. And yet, I'm still left gasping at the end of each chapter. It's so good. Well, and it's not even just that it's a cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger about a character dying, which as we discussed in the previous episode, any character's death is on the table at any given time. So when there is a cliffhanger like that, you are genuinely wondering. Yeah. And I was when I was reading this month by month. You're genuinely wondering like, shit, is the will going to be dead when we come back to this in 30 days? Right. Which you can all ponder uh, as we take a quick break. But when we come back, we will have our big takeaways from these chapters, as well as our favorite panels and quotes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back, everyone. Let's now jump into some takeaways from today's reading. And of course, then we'll wrap up with our favorite panels and quotes. So takeaway number one that we wanted to discuss today is about grief. That is such a central theme all throughout the chapters today in particular, but in this entire story at large. We've discussed on previous episodes how so many of the characters are motivated by trauma they've experienced, whether it's directly tied to the war that's raging in this story, or whether they are indirect victims of that war. And today's set of chapters in particular 
I think touch on something that we haven't discussed before is what follows after you've experienced trauma, whether it's the loss of a loved one or the carnage of a battlefield, the the grief that follows you for days, weeks, months, and years after that event takes place and how you deal with that. And obviously, after the death of Barr, we see that most distinctly with Marco and Clara, how they are dealing with the grief of losing one of the most important men in both of their lives. Yeah, it's just so clear that, you know, for these characters, when they've lost someone forever that they truly loved, that hurt never fully goes away, even no matter how much time has passed. And that's okay. And we see that in the exchange between Clara and Heist around the loss of Barr and Heist's wife, or Clara having lost her husband. They both still feel it, even though for Clara it's fresh, and for Heist it was, you know, ostensibly many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. And Heist gets this quote that is just, he had that earlier one that I shared when we were doing the recap, but this one too, where he says, quote, if I'm being honest, nothing will ever hurt quite so deeply as the moment I heard the first person I ever really loved was gone. Ugh. And it's just so intense the way that Brian is able to write with such clarity and directness about this experience. And it it's almost feels like a setup that all these characters have had this terrible grief that they've had to suffer through until once again you take a step back and think about the world that they're all living in where there's this literally galaxy spanning war which means people are literally just going to die yeah all the time and that's clearly what's happened to all of these characters in the story yeah absolutely and even moving beyond clara and heist and marco we see this with the will and sophie this planet literally creates hallucinations about the people that both of these characters are grieving for. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Will's wound is much more fresh, much more recent, and he is hallucinating once again about the stock. This is something he's done under the influence of drugs before in a previous chapter, and here he is doing it again. The person they want most back in their lives is being shown to them. Both of these characters are still grieving the loss of these people they loved so much, and that trauma they experienced from a separation from a parent, from learning of a death of a loved one, is something that this planet is literally bringing to life in front of them and using to manipulate and influence them. And what this really reminds me of is a couple of months ago, I actually read Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking for the first time, which is this incredibly beautiful and sad book where Joan Didion basically describes her life for the 365 days after the death of her husband. And she talks about a lot of the themes we're discussing today, the trauma of that initial death, mm -hmm. and then the grief that lingered with her for ever, basically, and how that grief would crop up in sudden and unexpected ways, even after she had thought that she had, quote unquote, moved on from the death, that she was ready to, quote unquote, heal that book made it clear that like something that deeply affecting, you never truly heal from. And a quote from that book came to mind while I was reading these chapters. Joan Didion wrote, quote, I know why we try to keep the dead alive. We try to keep them alive in order to keep them with us. I also know that if we are to live ourselves, there comes a point at which we must relinquish the dead. 
Let them go, keep them dead. End quote. It's a beautiful and sad book. I recommend everyone truly read it. It's a must read. But the way that Will and Sophie see their loved ones come back to life, the way that Clara and Heist talk about the loss of their loved ones, the way Marco is dealing with his grief, the way he flashes back to his childhood the moment he sees his dead father on the ground, all of that just made me think back to that beautiful book by Joan Didion. Yeah, and it's really wild the way I've been struggling, even as we've been doing this podcast, to explain to people why they should read this book, why they should read Saga. And it's, as we talk about these themes, it always hits me. It's like, oh, this is why, because this book dives deep on universal human topics like grief and, you know, things that affect all of us in a way that is easy to digest because it's in this fantastical story. But like, yeah, all of these characters have this as part of who they are and what they're experiencing and it's universal. And I love that. And I love that quote from that Didion book. I've never read that before, but I have lost people who are very close to me. And I absolutely feel both of those points that like you struggle as much as you can to keep them alive. And then at a certain point, you realize that in order for you to keep living, you have to like just let it go and really accept that they are dead. There's one interesting sort of flip side or I don't know, it's sort of like sits right next to all of this grief through these chapters, which is you talked about this a little bit, but there's sort of the trauma of death or injury or something awful that happens. And then there's kind of the grief that lingers afterwards. And grief tends to remain unresolved for most of these characters in some capacity, right? It's still a part of them. It comes back up and again. But it is amazing to see how this story deals with characters moving through trauma in order to overcome it. Yeah. And there's this example here in these chapters of Sophie. I know you picked this as your favorite, but Sophie getting help to move through her trauma from Lion Cat of all characters mm. is just kind of amazing. There's also a little bit of like, we see Marco trying to overcome his war trauma through his radical pacifism. There's this idea that grief will always be a part of you, but trauma doesn't have to define you. Yeah. That I think is pretty pervasive through this story. And it's uplifting. And it it is a big piece of what I like about it is that all of these characters have had lives that are traumatized and shitty, but that that trauma is not who they are and that there are ways that they can find ways to reclaim their own identity and their own self to move forward. Yeah. Wow. Beautifully said, Alan. So shifting slightly from grief and trauma to yet mm -hmm. more intense shit, our second <laughs> takeaway from today's reading is the fact that it seems more and more apparent that literally every single character in this book has blood on their hands. Oh, yeah. It shouldn't surprise us anymore to learn that one of our beloved characters, Alana in this case, has been pressed or forced or maybe even chosen to commit an act of terrible violence in their past as part of having to live through this war. Alana, in this case, had to drop bombs on civilians that she didn't want to do. She held back, but ultimately had to do it in that moment. Marco has his own trauma about the violence he committed in the war. Just all of these characters have had to shoot, kill, murder, maim someone in order to get to where they are. And as I was thinking about this, I was like, Oh, it's like a zombie movie. Yeah. Or I don't know if you watched recently the series on HBO Max Station Eleven, which is another one of those like post-apocalypse stories. But one of the parts of those apocalypse narratives is whenever two survivors meet up, there's this understanding between the two of them that like they had to do some bad shit to still be alive. Like if you make it a couple years into a zombie plague, 
you've killed some people. Mm -hmm. And the same with Station Eleven in that story sort of one of the things when you get close to somebody is you ask them how they survived the first hundred days of this apocalyptic scenario that happens. So they'll ask each other, like, how'd you survive the first hundred? And I think that that's what this book is kind of pointing out is that in this intense and sort of overwhelming shitty scenario of war, of total war, if you've survived this far enough to like be alive and active in the world, yeah. you've probably had to become violent because that's what the war has done to every part of life. Is yeah. It's all sort of has this pervasive violence, except on landfall itself, which is funny because there you get to see that like, oh no, a normal suburban life is fine as long as you live inside the evil empire. Right, right. And I think in addition to that point, there's the morality and ethics of it all is quite muddy too mm -hmm. because we know Alana... We've followed her since the start of this story, and we know she's not a bad person, per se. And in fact, just knowing that she was hesitant to drop these bombs on the civilians makes her more sympathetic, right? That tracks. That is the kind of person Alana is. Mm -hmm. And it's really the situation that forced her hand. She was an enlisted soldier. Her commanding officer gave her a command. She had no choice to do it. And what's interesting is that then sets off this domino effect. It is this civilian bombing incident that then gets Alana transferred to Cleve, oh, shit. where, as we know, our entire story begins. It's where she meets Marco and this whole crazy thing kicks off. Oh, wow. And it's so interesting to think that one act of just sheer violence of bloodshed <laughs> led to this beautiful heartfelt story and this lovely family that you and i alan spend hours of our weeks talking and gushing about what's so interesting to me is just like the the cause and effect of it all the morality of it all yes alana does have blood on her hands hazel even foreshadows that there may be more blood to come but we know alana and we know the story and our characters and it doesn't necessarily, like with the trauma and the grief, define who they are. The bloodshed is a effect of this war, but not a defining character of our characters. Well, and it's just part of life. There's a quote that Heist says when Clara is asking him about his son and whether he was caught up in the war. And Heist says this sort of throwaway quote, but it really stuck with me, where he says, quote, in the end, nobody really escapes this thing. Yeah. And the thing being the war, right? Like that, sure, even if you aren't in it, you're still affected by it because of how just omnipresent and pervasive. And it's interesting to me because last episode, you know, we talked about how no character is safe from being killed. And the same thing, I guess, now goes with characters killing other people, beings, creatures, etc. Mm -hmm. But that then made me think that, well, okay, so if Anyone can be killed and anyone can also kill at any given point, but we still have these dynamic, complex characters. What makes a character moral or good or upstanding in this universe? Because we have to go beyond these descriptors that we're usually more comfortable with. They're like, okay, well, killing is the ultimate sin. And it's like, well, if everybody has had to do it in order to survive in this universe, it complexifies characters a great deal. All right, Alan, those were some heavy topics. Let's end on some lighter notes and talk about our favorite panels. And quotes from today's reading to wrap up. So I'll let you kick it off for us first. What was your favorite panel from today's reading? Well, as as you alluded to earlier, I 
love this single panel of this wedding photo that's in Alana's stepmom's house because it <laughs> encapsulates so yeah. perfectly one of my favorite things that Fiona Staples or really any amazing artist can do with their art, which is to tell a whole full story with just a single static image. It's that like a picture's worth a thousand words, you know, mm -hmm. cliche. So you have this single panel of a single framed photograph that uh, Upshur and Doff find in Alana's stepmom and I guess dad's house. And every detail in this image has been thought out for maximum conveyance of some aspect of the character of the three people in the photo. So in the far left side of the photo, you have Alana's new stepmom who is in a very normie and basic <laughs> sleeveless wedding gown that looks very expensive. And then next to her is standing Alana's dad, who is the opposite of the blushing bride, all gleeful and full of smiles. Alana's dad's face is just like stern and grumpy looking. And between those two, you get the entire backstory of this engagement, yeah. marriage, and everything about their life together that this young woman is very like giggly and like kind of, I don't know, maybe a little simple and that the dad is kind of a grumpy, uncaring and unaffectionate, right? And yeah, then what yeah. really like ties the whole image together is in the background behind the two of them, there is this depiction of Alana, I have to assume as a teen, maybe early twenties, just as like, there's no other way to describe it, but just as like teen emo goth Alana, she's got like <laughs> her arms crossed and she's shooting this death stare across the panel of the picture at her new stepmom, who clearly she's not happy about. So it gives you every indication of why Alana left home to go join the military because she hates her new stepmom. But it also tells you all of this stuff about the kind of teen that she was, right? Like, you know, the kind of teen mm -hmm. who wears too much eyeliner and has painted nails and multicolored hair. And even the little like, I don't know, gothy like pigtail puffs thing that she has going on. Yeah. And the dress is like a normal sort of bridesmaid's dress, but clearly she hates wearing it. And everything about it, you just get that like, oh, this is exactly the kind of young woman who would have happened upon a romance novel and read an entirely huge amount into it to end up with a treatise <laughs> on radical pacifism. It is yeah. so good. You get everything that you need to know about Alana's entire family backstory from this one panel, this one photograph, and I love it. Yeah, it's so true. That one picture says a thousand words. We don't need to know anything else about Alana's upbringing or her past or her relationship with her parents. So what about you, Abu? We talked a little about this, but you were quite taken with the collection of panels of Sophie and Lion Cat cuddling in the grass. Yeah, definitely. This was a no-brainer for me. These panels of Sophie and Lion Cat on the lush planet absolutely wrecked me. It's just such a gorgeous sequence, a very quiet scene. Props to... Fiona's ability to draw a planet that makes my heart ache because I want to <laughs> live there so much. The, the snow-capped peaks in the distance, the bright blue sky, the lush fields, the trees, the bushes with the berries on them. Like, I want to go to this planet and be trapped there. Honestly, take me. And what absolutely crushes me about this scene is how cozy Sophie and Lion Cat are looking. Lion Cat is curled up around her, and Sophie is obviously talking about herself, her new name, and then she says, I am all dirty on the inside because I did bad things with dot dot dot, 
as we can assume, she's talking about sextillion, and Lion Cat cuts her off by whispering lying. And then in the next completely silent panel, she just leans over and cuddles Lion Cat as Lion Cat goes back to sleep. And honestly, I can't look at these panels without my eyes tearing up because it's just too much. It's beautifully drawn. It's beautifully written. And the sequence of the panels and the way that it's paced and the way it ends on this totally silent hug between these two characters is it's just too much for me. And we've actually seen this bond. If you have paid attention sort of in the background of a a lot of panels in previous chapters, we've actually seen Lion Cat and Sophie building this bond in the background together. There Mm -hmm. are numerous panels of them drawn, cuddled up as the Will and Gwendolyn talk to each other. And here we see that relationship on full display, front and center. It's beautiful. It's truly wonderful. And it would make sense, right? If, you know, Sophie's gone through this trauma of all of these, you know, humans or humanoid characters having perpetrated horrible abuse on her. So she's reestablishing her ability to have physical intimacy with a cuddly cat, a cuddly hairless cat, which I don't know if you've ever touched a hairless cat before, Abu, but they're incredibly soft in a kind of unnerving way. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's like nice. It's like... Uh, I don't know, we have a long-haired cat and sometimes we shave him because his hair gets too long and it's real soft and fuzzy. I imagine it's very cuddly. One more thing to do, our favorite quotes. What was the piece of dialogue you loved from today's reading? So for my favorite writing from these chapters, I just went with a quick little one-liner that we get from D. Oswald Heist, who to me feels like the closest kind of sort of autobiographical analog Mm -hmm. we get for Brian K. Vaughan. Yeah. you know, he's sort of kind of the hero at the center of this story, guiding all of the narrative. He's a writer. He's a weirdo. He's bald. Brian K. Vaughn is bald. Brian K. Vaughn, of course, has two eyes where Heist only has the one. But beyond <laughs> that, they seem like a pretty straight match. And every once in a while, uh, Heist gets these little bits of wisdom that he kind of imparts. And so specifically, there's a line that Brian gives Heist after Alana asks why he owns a copy of this obscure wreath board game, the one that is making Marco laugh because he used to play it when he was a kid. And in response, Heist says something that honestly has stuck with me ever since I read it in this chapter. He says, quote, there are only three forms of high art, the symphony, the illustrated children's book, and the board game. Mm. Which is funny because this came out in, I don't know, 2012, 2013, which I feel like kind of came before what I would describe as the great board game boom of the last decade kicked off by Catan and Ticket to Ride and a couple of other games like that. And I'm not a huge board game person, but I do enjoy a good board game. And I I just love the idea that like clearly Brian K. Vaughn loves board games and turns the idea of kind of high art on its head here by saying the symphony beautiful music, illustrated children's books, which clearly is a nod to comics, Mm -hmm. and the board game, which it's just fun. It's, you know, sometimes I really like Brian K. Vaughn when he is big and grandiose, like the quote about teaching your kids to lose because that's what life is. And sometimes Brian is at his best when he's just being like quippy, funny, and clever. And this little bit of writing has all three qualities. And I don't know, it it just made me smile. And I've also thought about it literally since the first time I read it. Yeah, I loved that too. And it's funny because my favorite quote that I picked was also for very similar reasons. Like there's a lot of really great writing 
in these chapters. It's all very dialogue heavy. The plot slows down and we spend more character moments. And we've talked about a lot of the great writing so far. But I went with this funny little almost throwaway line that (laughs) Isabel says. She says to Clara, quote, hush, let them geek out, end quote. And this is the moment where Alana is first meeting Heist and geeking out with him about the hidden meanings of his books. And obviously there are a number of meta jokes that we've talked about from Brian all throughout today's chapters, but Mm -hmm. this one takes the cake for me because here we are, Alan, you and I, (laughs) two nerds geeking out about a story, a book, and characters that we love and cherish so much that mean the world to us. And Isabel slash Brian K. Vaughn totally gets it. He understands us. He understands what a fandom means to a story and what an audience means to a creator. No, totally. And so Isabel just saying here, hush, let them geek out. Don't yuck someone else's yum. If a story, if a work of art means so much to someone, let them enjoy it. There's a reason it resonates with them. And so that line just stuck out to me, especially because I was literally writing the script for our deep dive discussion <laughs> podcast where we'd, where we'd be geeking out about these chapters as I was reading it. And so it all just felt very meta and in the moment. And it just felt like Brian understood us. Well, I can also picture somebody asking either of our partners or any of our friends, like, wait, your partner spends hours of their time talking to somebody else and talking into a microphone just about some comic (laughs) book? And I can imagine my wife or your partner just saying, hush, let them geek out. Because the implied line after that is, it makes them happy. Yes, yes, that is the implied line. Ah, beautiful. Our motto on this podcast. (laughs) I love that. Okay, so that wraps up today's reading, chapters 13, 14, and 15. So for next episode, make sure that you have completed the rest of volume three. So that's all the way through chapter 18, which we will be diving into in our next read-along episode. Well, friends, two minds can sometimes improve the odds of a podcast's survival, but there are no guarantees. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network at loreparty.com. You can also follow our network on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Music on this show was composed by Lawrence Kelly, who makes lots of amazing things. Thank you, Lawrence. And thank you all for listening. And remember podcasts are fragile things but just like alana marco and hazel we'll all just keep on exploring and learning together together